you've got your Bible, go to Matthew chapter 9. We're going to get into this. We've got a lot of ground to cover, but I do want to thank Mike for, for filling in last week. Mike is one of the, the leaders and elders of our church and uh, helps uh, with vision and helps uh, with leadership of the church. Just so you understand how we're structured, um, I do have leaders around me that uh, help with accountability, um, that help with direction of the church. And uh, I sit and meet with these guys and say, here's what I'm dreaming about. And they kind of bring me back in. And, um, and then we pray about it and go logically forward with what God is leading us as a church to do. So uh, I'd like to thank Mike and, and all of our leaders who help with that process. Um, we've been teaching through the book of Matthew. And uh, it's been exciting because we've seen Jesus really uh, step on the scene and, and begin to engage with ministry and engage with people. And we're seeing lives changed as a result of Jesus. Um, Jesus is the gospel. Jesus is God flesh, God man. He's 100% God, 100% man. And we start to see life change as a result of what Jesus is doing on the earth. And uh, last week, uh, Mike talked about Jesus' power over sin. And honestly, for the last couple weeks, we've been talking about the authority and power of Jesus. And we see that Jesus has authority over the, the wind and the waves, over nature, over us, over uh, creation, over sickness, over illness. And we, there's, if you break Matthew 8 and 9 up into some sections here, um, there's uh, really two series of three sets of miracles. Uh, Jesus performs the first set of miracles where he does uh, cast out demons. He does uh, have power over sickness. And he does display his power over nature. And we see a response to who Jesus is. And the first response in those section of miracles are the men who would be disciples. Remember we talked about those guys. Um, one couldn't count the cost and one decided the cost was too high to follow Jesus. And so they walk away not following Jesus. And then the next section of miracles we have where Jesus displays his power over the enemy. And then he displays his power over sickness again and power over sin. Last week, Mike talked to you and did a beautiful job of talking about how sin paralyzes us. And so we're going to see another response to who Jesus is. I believe that we don't respond to the miracles. We respond to the teaching. Now, anytime in scripture you see miracles performed, it's not as a precursor to, to announcing who Jesus is. The miracles follow the teaching. And we as a church got to get in line with this, that we teach the word of God, we root ourselves in truth in the word of God, and whatever God decides to do that might be supernatural or a miracle, as we would call it, then so be it. Giddy up. Let's do it. I want to see that stuff. But most of all, I want to see his teaching and being rooted in the word of God and the truth of scripture and who Jesus is. I think if we make Jesus very clear, then we see the other stuff. If we chase the other stuff, we miss Jesus. And so that's what's kind of going on here. And we're going we're gonna to see today Jesus' power over tradition. We're getting ready to enter a time of the year where traditions are key to families. I mean, you've got your family traditions for Thanksgiving, your family traditions for Christmas. And when you blend households, those traditions sometimes get challenged. I remember when Heather and I first got married. And our first Christmas with kids was an interesting uh, um, challenge, we'll call it, um, with how Santa Claus does presents in our home. And I'm not going to burst any bubbles, but man, Santa did things different in my house growing up than he did in Heather's house. 
And we had to figure out a way to bring two traditions together. See, when, when I came down the stairs Christmas morning, Santa had spent longer at my house putting the toys together so they were ready to play with. I mean, it was like, you go for it. And, and Heather grew up, Santa didn't spend as much time at her house. I don't know, she lived in the Northeast and he had to get more, I don't know. <laughs> He's busy. But they were all wrapped in Santa Claus paper. And so they got the joy of opening them and then her parents got the joy of putting it together and putting the stickers on and all that fun stuff. Well, those were traditions that we had to work through. And honestly, when you track it back with churches and and just the history of Christianity, and then you even go back to the Old Testament history of Judaism, and, and all of these uh, ways of following God has built tradition. And Jesus comes on the scene and displays his power over traditions. Traditions have the ability to get us into a rut where we never change, where we continue to do the same thing. In our men's study, we were talking about kind of just that mindlessly doing what you've always done before. And the story of the ham came up. I don't know if you've heard it, where the, the lady is cooking a ham for a holiday dinner. I don't know if it was Thanksgiving or Christmas. And she cuts the end off of the ham. And her daughter says, Mom, why do you cut the end off of the ham? I don't know. That's what my mom always did. So the, the daughter goes to her grandmother and says, Grandma, why do you cut the end off of the ham? And she goes, well, I got that from my mom. She goes, well, why did your mom do it? She goes, well, because when we would cook a ham for the whole family, we didn't have a pan big enough for the ham. So she would cut the ham off. And we get into these mindless traditions, and it's because we've always done it this way, and that's the way we know to carry on. I mean, as humans, we do have this nature to get into a repetitive motion. We like to get into a routine. We like to get into a groove. And, and one of the things, as, a, as the leader of our church, I'm going to continue to throw things in the groove here. Because I don't want us to get comfortable with tradition. I don't want us to get comfortable with just going along and getting by. To me, that's mediocrity. Mediocrity leads us into a whole mess of trouble. I want us to be an extraordinary church. I want us all to live extraordinary lives. And I think that happens when we take the time to evaluate why do we do the things we do and does it have any value in what we're doing? I mean, as a church, we've got to evaluate, is what we're doing making Jesus clear? Is what we're doing giving us the ability to love people more? If the answer is no, then we need to not do it. And it doesn't matter if we, well, that's the way I grew up, or that's the way it should be done. No, Jesus steps on the scene, and he starts to to push these traditions to the side. So let's, let's read what's going on. Matthew chapter 9. Here we go. It's on the screen here if you want to follow along or if you've got your Bible, you can uh, mark in it. It is legal to write in your Bible, by the way. I'm just, just going to say that. That's free. Um, and I forgot to set my timer, so you guys may be in for a long message. <laughs> See, I take a vacation and the wheels come off. I come back and, man, it's just crazy. Anyway. Uh, 9, verse 9. Here we go. i got to stay on track. As Jesus went on from there, this is after he healed the paralytic. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. This is the Matthew who wrote this gospel, by the way. I mean, we're reading the account of the man whose life was so transformed from sitting at a tax collector's booth to becoming an author. I mean, God completely changed his career path here. 
He followed him. While Jesus was having dinner in Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? There was probably quite a sneer and a snoot in their voice. Their nose was probably turned up just a little bit. Um, by the way, the Pharisees wouldn't have been at the party. They were on the outside looking in. They were watching through the windows. They were the nosy neighbors. And so they asked them, why did your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. And just as the Pharisees had a sneer in their voice, I think Jesus is good at sarcasm. I think, you know, he created all things. I think Jesus is kind of pow, right back at him with this phrase. He said, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I have not come to call righteous, but sinners. And then so he sends them on their merry way. He was quoting Hosea 6, 6 there, by the way. Then after that, John's disciples came and asked him, how is it that we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus answered, how can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he was with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, then they will fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch will pull away from the garment, making the tear worse. Neither do men pour new wine into old wineskins. If they do, the skins will burst. The wine will run out and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins and both are preserved. Let's go back through this and understand what's going on. We're seeing a lot of traditions get smacked around here. We're seeing some different perspectives come in to Jesus' uh, life at this point. When Mike talked to you last week about Jesus saying, what is better for me to say, get up and walk or your sins are forgiven, that starts this pendulum in motion of the Pharisees then starting to plot how to get rid of this man, Jesus. Because they realize this, he's not just walking around doing some miracles. There's some power and authority that we're not going to submit to. We've got to get this man out of the way. He is starting to affect our livelihoods. Jesus is cramping my style. And so this starts the Pharisees of thinking, I got to get rid of this. So they really start watching Jesus very closely after that interchange of conversation last, last week or in Matthew chapter 9 when Mike talked. I keep saying last week as Jesus had this conversation last week. <laughs> So let's go back to it. There, there's three perspectives that are, that are taking place. The first one is Matthew's, um, the man sitting at the tax collector's booth. We'll call him the repentant sinner. You see, Matthew, uh, Matthew was a very corrupt person, according to society, according to the Pharisees, even according to the Jews. Matthew was a Jew, and Matthew is a political traitor. He was a traitor because he was a Jew who was working for the Roman government collecting taxes from the Jews. So he was basically going in and taking money from his own people to give to the Roman government who were oppressing the Jews. Now do you see where this can start to get a little volatile? And, and just so you understand, tax collectors in this day, they were nothing like what we see today. Tax collectors would be like the, the, the mafia. They would be like a, a, almost like a terrorist group. 
because they would have power. They would be given power by the Roman government and then they would begin to abuse that power. You see, Rome didn't care how they got the taxes. They just wanted the taxes. And they found it was better to find someone to collect from the Jews that was a Jew because they figured if they could corrupt him, then we'll get our taxes. It doesn't matter. And he has to fend for himself. And the way tax collection would work in this time is he would have people that would help collect his taxes. He would set up a booth and he would decide how much he was going to collect from you. And so it would behoove you to befriend a tax collector, yet pushing you deeper as an outcast of society. Are you understanding that? He was not just a man who would sit like in the Snoopy sketches and say, the tax collector is in, come drop a nickel in the bowl and go on your merry way. This, it was moving through a corrupt toll booth system. And he would decide how you were going to be treated. And he had authority and he had power. Um, he cheated people. Remember, Zacchaeus was also in the collections business. And when he met Jesus, he said, Not only will I repay what I have taken, I will repay it fourfold. So he, obviously there's a lot of corruption within this system. And he was not a very nice person. I love that Jesus goes after that. Jesus didn't go find a temple and say, let me, let me sit with the religious people because I can feel better about myself. No, he went to the people who needed him, remember? It's the sick who need the doctor. And so he was excluded from the temple and the synagogue. Matthew was an outcast. As a Jew, he was not welcomed in his own temple. He could not go sit and listen to the teaching and the word of God as they would talk it through and try to understand it. He was excluded from the legal system of the day. In the Jewish society, Matthew couldn't even go before the court and testify as a Jew. He wasn't a Roman citizen, so he couldn't be involved with their legal system. So he was cast out of an entire legal process. Even if he had the, the ability to exonerate someone, his testimony would be invalid. No Orthodox Jew would even associate with him. He was so far of what would be considered outside the kingdom of God, that no one would even look at him unless they had to pay him. No one would even acknowledge his existence until they had to hand over their money to him. And I'm sure it was a very beautiful acknowledgement at that point. And so Matthew is this person who is what the Pharisees would consider outside of God's grace. Too many times we get into this tradition of thinking of an in-and-out mentality. Well, I've accepted Jesus Christ as my personal Lord and Savior, so I'm inside grace. That man over there, he's outside of God's grace. I know. And too many times the churches have built this judgmental tradition of deciding and declaring who's in and who's out. And according to everything in society and the religious tradition that was set in place in this time, that Matthew was considered outside of the grace of God and could never get inside the grace of God because the only way to it was through the Jewish synagogue, the temples, the sacrificial system, and no one would even associate with them. Here is a life that has been written off because of tradition. And when Jesus walks up and says, come follow me, Matthew had seen and heard all that Jesus was doing. 
And I, again, it goes back to this point. When we meet Jesus for who he really is, we will either respond with obedience or rejection. You can sugarcoat it or candy coat it any way you want. But those are the two responses to Jesus when he steps into our life, when we meet him for who he really is. Not when we read some uh, American Western description of what Jesus wants to do for your business or Jesus wants to do for your finances. But when we meet Jesus, the King of Kings, the Son of God, when we meet him for who he really is, we will make that choice, accept him or reject him. And Matthew gets up immediately and follows him. That is the power of Jesus over tradition, over sin, over nature that is calling Matthew to get up and follow me. Change careers. I don't know if Matthew laid in bed at night and and thought, this is not what I wanted my life to turn out to be. I don't know if Matthew had insulated himself with the wealth that was around him and the only friends that he had were friends that he bought. I don't know if Matthew longed for an authentic, real relationship with other people in life, but when Jesus stepped up to his booth and said, follow me, he walked away. He gave complete abandonment. He wasn't like the other people in Matthew 8 that approached Jesus and said, ah, let me first go bury my father, meaning I'll follow you, but on my time, not yours. Matthew got up and went. This shows that, that active faith. In, in um, James chapter 2, uh, 17 and 18, when it talks about faith without works is dead, we could even say that an inactive faith is no faith at all. And we're not going to get into judging, but we're gonna, I, I can honestly tell you that, that we have to be able to see fruit in our life. If we claim to have faith, there should be something that that faith is producing. Faith will produce fruit, spiritual fruit. We should see things happening as a result of our faith and our love and our relationship with God. That's not being judgmental. That's just doing a gut check and being self-aware and saying, "I, I claim to have faith. The only faith that I have is what Jesus gives me. Am I seeing anything from that faith? Because faith without works is dead. You see, what I love about Matthew is tradition would put him through all of these hoops. Even if you found an Orthodox Jew that would associate with Matthew to help bring him back into God's grace, he would have to go through the hoops. Here's what I love about Jesus. And the way God looks at sin, let's understand this as, as, as a people, as people who follow a holy God. God is good and we're not. Okay, God doesn't look at different measures of sin. God doesn't say, well, that's just a little lie. Oh, that's murder. God looks at sin as sin, and it separates us from him. Sin pulls us out of the grace of God. And God doesn't say, well, I can, I can look on you because you're just caught up in this petty little pet sin, but I can't look on you because you're just caught up in this life of, of homosexuality or addiction or pornography, so I will not look that way, but I'll look on this little pet sin. God doesn't judge degrees of sin. We're all sinners. And what I love about Jesus and I love about the foot of the cross is the ground is level. And when we all come to the foot of the cross, we're on level ground. There's no degrees of sin. 
This is where we as, as people who follow a holy God need to take on the mentality of me too. When someone says, I don't think I could step into God's grace because if, if only he, he knew how bad I was. You know, instead of us in the tradition of saying, you're right, you probably need to not be here. And pushing out the people who desperately need God's grace, we need to say, you know what, me too. Me too. But that grace that flows down from the cross covers me too and covers you. And too many times churches walk through society pushing their hands out to say, you're worse than I am. And I'm sick of that. I hate that tradition. I am sick of the fact that we as the people of God have pushed people out of God's grace. When the only reason we can be in God's grace is because Jesus stepped up into our space and said, follow me. And he was willing to get out of all the junk and say, come on, let's go. There's a life that is different that you can live. I'm changing your identity. With Matthew as tax collector to disciple slash author. When God really, truly got a hold of my life, it was corporate middle management guy to pastor. I don't know what God's transformation is in your life, but he wants to do something new. He is all about the new. Matthew did what he knew to do. I love Romans 12:1 in the message translation when it says, take your everyday, ordinary, eating, drinking, sleeping, walking around life and place it before God as an offering. I love that. Matthew did just that. Matthew didn't evaluate and say, okay, here's Jesus. He's a holy God. Oh man, all these people that I know, I have to walk away from. Matthew was probably so excited. He's like, you know when you have people in your office that get the promotion and they're like, hey, we're going to have, we're going to have a happy hour. We're going to have a celebration for this promotion. Matthew got a promotion and Matthew did what he knew to do. Let's throw a party. And who, are you going to throw? who do you want to party with? The people you know. And so he's got all his peeps, that, you know, that I don't know if they're bought friends or what. I don't know if they're authentic relationships or, you know, Matthew had the money so he could get the good stuff. But he invites Jesus because Jesus said, follow me. Matthew did what he knew to do, invited Jesus into his life. He didn't say, oh, well, now that I've got Jesus, whew, man, I can't talk to that guy. Well, that guy's out. Ugh, Ooh, that girl, nope, uh, no. Matthew took his everyday, ordinary, eating, sleeping, drinking, walking around life and invited Jesus into it. And what does Jesus do? I'm in. And so Jesus is at this party. And then the next group of people that we're going to talk about come in. And these are the self-righteous Pharisees. You see, so, so you understand, Pharisees believed that they were righteous and saw no need for the grace that Jesus is preaching. The Pharisees believed that they had figured out how to attain holiness. Their way of doing that was to never associate with anything unholy, was to never approach anything that was considered unclean. Matthew was unclean. And so they wouldn't have been in this party, but like I said, they're the neighbors looking out going, hmm, mm-hmm. Well, there's uh, two drinks Matthew's had, Mm -hmm. and he's in grace now. (laughs) And I, Jesus, you're eating a little much there, aren't you? Wouldn't that be a a, a glut? I mean, some translation or some 
passages, this is what another parallel passage, John, or, uh, Mark and Luke tell these stories. This is where Jesus gets accused of being a drunkard and a glutton. So somebody's obviously, one of the Pharisees is saying, I saw Jesus have two glasses of wine, and that's God's son. I mean, and, and he ate, he went back for a second plate. I mean, this son of man, he's a drunk and a glutton, man. Jesus was involved. The Pharisees, at best, were accusing Jesus of ceremonial, being ceremonially unclean because he was around sinners and tax collectors. At worst, they were judging him and accusing him of being morally unclean because of the people and the company that he was choosing to keep. And, and they began to question this, and I love this because Jesus says, it's not the sick, or it's not the well who need a doctor. What he's saying to them is, you think you've got a self-righteous attitude. You think you're righteous. If, if, even if you're sick and dying, you believe you're healthy and well, and so you will never go see a doctor. And because you think you have this righteousness, you will never see a need for a Savior. Because you think you've manufactured God's grace through the traditions and the rituals that you keep, you will never accept the grace of the Savior who will hang on the cross. And so he tells them pretty much to go figure out what this means. Because you understand the Old Testament. To be a Pharisee means you know the Old Testament. And you don't just have an idea of the Old Testament. You know it. I mean, it is committed to memory. They would be so close to the Word of God that they would carry little boxes called phylacteries and they would roll up little scrolls of the Word of God and put it. They'd have one on their forehead. They would have them around their neck. The Word of God was all around them, but it was never in them. And he says, go figure out what this means. He says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. What Jesus is saying is, I want to live under grace and mercy, not the rituals of a system that you think is going to keep you in God's grace. Go figure out what that means. It wouldn't be hard. All they have to do is recognize, man, God is good and I am not. That passage that Jesus told them to go figure out was, was really God saying to his people, you've gotten away from me. Israel had left God. They were in the cycle of this. It's almost like a bad relationship where Israel would be like, I love you, God, we're back, and then uh, they're over here. Oh, wait, wait, wait. And this cycle of humanity happens. And Jesus is saying, go figure out what this means. It's almost like... um, the tradition can be with us as a church. We know that there's people who are sick and hurting and dying and we're too afraid to go touch them. You see, Jesus, remember when he healed the, the leper? What did he do? He touched him. What did that mean? It means that Jesus was touching something unclean. That means Jesus, oh no, had now a risk of probably catching leprosy. I think we as a church, we get into this tradition of not desiring to help people and we're too afraid that their sin is going to jump onto us. I mean, I'm tired of that. I'm tired of churches sitting back and, and trying to create a space for people to come to them instead of getting out and touching people. 
I mean, it, it bothers me so much that, that someone who has been so affected and impacted and transformed by the grace of God is unwilling to reach a handout to someone who's hurting or someone who is so caught up in a life that continues to keep them away from God. I mean, Jesus walked up and said to Matthew, come on. He wasn't scared that Matthew's tax collectedness will jump onto him. Like, oh, don't want any of that. We've got to get over this. Uh, I don't know. Is it, maybe it's a phobia of sin. Sinophobia. I don't know. But when you have been so transformed by grace, it's the power of the Holy Spirit. Remember, that's the power over sin. That He gives us the ability to stand up under temptation. Now, we're not going to go toying with that. I mean, I, I don't think you should create a ministry um, to alcoholics in the bar if that's something you've struggled with. But God has given you a gifting and ability and has touched you so you can go touch other people. If, if you have struggled with extramarital affairs, I don't think your ministry should be to someone on how to, how to maintain security in a marriage and your ministry to be the opposite sex. There's some things that we just got to do that are not stupid, but we got to be willing to reach out and touch with grace and with mercy, and with love. Because see, without compassion, our rituals mean nothing. We can have all these rituals. They can mean nothing. The Pharisees had religion, but they missed God's mercy and His grace. And Jesus was coming to call people to repentance. That's the true gospel. And then the third group is the skeptical religionists. These were the disciples of John. Remember, John the Baptist was announcing the kingdom of heaven. He was announcing Jesus coming. And, and so there was the disciples that followed John. Now, the, at this time, understand, the disciples were kind of in a tailspin because John had been arrested. He's about to be beheaded. So they're kind of a little, little like, what is going on? Their world's been rocked. They were not at this party. They wouldn't have been in there. Their lifestyle would have been to be in the wilderness the, the tenets of what they would do to follow John and to prepare the way for the Messiah was to fast and to pray. And so they begin to question and they say, why does Jesus not fast? Why are you not fasting if he's the Messiah? Because we've been taught and John said that we need to fast and we need to pray for the coming of the Messiah. And if he's the Messiah, why are you not doing these things? They were asking, honestly, a valid question, but they weren't asking it based on the Old Testament law. They were asking the question from a perspective of their tradition and ritual. The Old Testament law required one time fasting on Yom Kippur. Now, rabbis would say, if you're going to follow me, you're going to fast twice a week. John probably held them to this principle. You're going to fast twice a week. And so they were coming at this from tradition and ritual, not Old Testament law. And definitely not grace. And so they ask a valid question. And Jesus answers these concerns. And Jesus tells them, hey, the, the groom is here. If you go to a wedding at the reception, you're not going to be in mourning. You're not going to go, oh, I'm not going to eat. You know, it's, it's not a happy day. No. My sister got married last week. The reception was a celebration. It was happiness. There was food. I'm going to eat. I've got to feed this machine, you know what I mean? I work hard for this body. You have no idea, really. 
But Jesus is saying, wait, get your mind in the game here. The groom is here. I'm here. It's time to be in joy and celebration and be in feast. There will be a time that I will be taken away from you, and then you will, will fast. When we, when, here's what, where we fast. When we don't sense the presence of God in our life, we don't go on a hunger strike. We don't do it as an empty ritual. We don't say, well, I need to fast because God's not giving me what I want. It's when we desire and hunger God's presence in our life to such an extent that we have not felt in a long time that we say, God, I'm going to forego this so that I can focus on your presence, so that your grace and your spirit and your power and your wisdom and everything that is godly can enter my life. Not because I'm not getting what I want. And that ritual, that tradition of fasting is rooted in mercy. It's rooted in grace. And I love what Jesus is answering to them. He's saying, I'm coming to bring you something absolutely new. I'm tearing down your traditions. You see, Jesus' teaching was not to be added to the teaching of rabbis or the, quote, traditions of men, because it was and is incompatible. It's like he's saying, you've got you, you, this, this patch, and if you sew this patch on an old garment, then it's going to tear it apart. Jesus' truth will tear apart false teaching and rituals and traditions. If we start thinking that, we're, that something, uh, and there's a lot of false teachings in our society, There's a lot of things that we can get swept up in, but does it match up with the truth of God's Word? What does the truth of God's Word say about this? Because a new patch can't stay on an old garment. What would happen is is society was different than we are. I mean, if we get a hole in our clothes, you go replace the clothing. Jeans, I love jeans, and jeans stay with me for a long time. And jeans don't leave my household until my wife makes them. And I mean, and they, you know, they'll have holes in them. And I'll just say, well, I'll just wear a longer shirt. For me, in jeans, like I said, this body takes work. And to cover this body has to have the right covering. You know what I'm saying? Jeans I love. And when they get a hole in them, I'm like, well, let's sew a patch on them. And Heather's like, honey, the fabric around that hole. It's not even going to be strong enough to hold the patch. But in in these times, their their clothing had to last, and they would get holes in them and get worn out. But what they would do is they would sew a a new patch on an old garment. But what they would do is they would have to wash it and shrink it because, you know, it was 100% cotton, you know, and it's going to shrink. And so if you tried to put an unshrunk piece of fabric on a hole, then when you wash that garment, when it shrinks, it's going to tear the fabric around it because that fabric is weak and make it worse than it was before. And what Jesus is saying is, my truth, it's new. You cannot contain it. If you try to put my truth on top of all of your old traditions, what's going to happen is that truth is going to tear away because I'm not going to be bound by your traditions that are empty and outside of grace, and it's going to make you worse than you were before. It's not compatible. It doesn't fit. And so you've got to do something new. And then he says, my truth cannot be contained by the traditions of men. This is where he gets into the wineskin reference. Back in the day, they would take a really like goat stomach and they would dry it 
and they would put the wine in it, and as it would ferment, this wineskin would expand. And in the expansion of it, the, 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 the leather or the, the skin would grow weak because the gases in the fermenting process would put resistance on it. And then when that wine, when that wine will be poured out, you would have a stretch. It's almost like a balloon where, where you put it in, you put air in, and then you let the air out, it's, it's stretched out. And he's saying, a lot of you try this principle. You try to take some of your new wine and put it in the old wine skin. But what happens is when the gases build up, it explodes. And he's saying... I am bringing something new. This grace, this mercy, this righteousness that comes not from the law, but from grace and from mercy cannot be contained in your old tradition. It will explode. It will be messy. There will be stuff ever, everywhere. And people are going to get affected in that process. He's saying this is transformational. This is absolutely new. He came to replace the traditions of men, not destroy the law. Remember what Jesus said. He said, I've not come to abolish the law, but to... Fulfill it. And he's saying, as you let me fulfill the law with grace and mercy, it's new wine and new wineskin. It's new garments. And so when Jesus has this power over tradition, let me close down with this. Think about what tradition would have done to this scenario of Matthew. If the Pharisees would have had their way, Matthew would still be out side of grace. And, and too many times churches tend to get into this mindset of keeping people out. Of you don't fit the mold of this church. And I'm tired of that. I love our church. I love that we are accepting and welcoming of everyone now, we will preach the truth of gospel, and sometimes that truth will bring conviction, but that's the Holy Spirit's job. We will love you. And, and when you are confronted with sin, the attitude you will get is me too. Because my sin gets exposed just as much as yours does. There are things that I need to repent of just as much as you do. The same grace that covers my sin covers yours. The same sin that covers your sin covers mine. And that's where we get outside of tradition. How about us starting a new tradition of loving people? How about us starting a new tradition of welcoming people in, in the name of Jesus? Now, we will follow traditions here. We do communion. We do baptism. Those will be traditions. We'll even start new traditions as a church, which I'm excited about. I mean, it's like a new relationship. It's like, well, let's, how do we want to do Christmas? Well, this Christmas, I have no idea. Honestly, <laughs> I'm calling around. Hey, can we have Christmas services at your place? No. You know, no, not on Christmas Eve. I have no idea. We're going to start new traditions. But here's what we have to understand is that anything we do can become an empty ritual if grace is not infused in it. Everything that we do has to be a reflection of who Jesus is and make Jesus clear. And our focus will be on those. So here's, here's my challenge to you. Let Jesus replace your traditions. You have traditions. You can't sit back and say, well, I don't have any traditions that need to be replaced. Then let me challenge you this. Pray for some self-awareness. I mean, David prayed 
Search my heart, oh God. You know what? If, if you feel that there are tra- you don't have traditions that, that hinder anything of what God wants to do in your life, then pray for some self-awareness. Because, you know, there are some things that I need to repent of and I need God to transform in my life. We all do. So let's pray. Father, we love you. God, we, we thank you that, um, that you are perfect, that you are holy, that you are good. We recognize that we're not. And Father, we thank you so much that, that you have power over the traditions and the rituals and the emptiness of life that we can tend to settle into. And we thank you that, that you make all things new. That when we get stuck in a rut of life and we get stuck in the mediocrity in our marriage, when we get stuck into mediocrity in our job, just we feel just ineffective in life in general. That God, you don't desire to, to patch up our life. You desire to clothe us with a new garment. Like in your word, Father, when you said, put on the cloak of righteousness, the garment of praise. Father, may we live life clothed in your righteousness and reflecting praise and glory back to you. Give us the courage, God, not to, to evaluate relationships that we need to disconnect from, but those relationships we need to be influencers in. Thank you that Matthew had the courage and the fortitude to invite you into his party, into his house. God, give us that same courage. Help us not to insulate ourselves with only Christian people and isolate ourselves away from where we need to live life and where we need to be a reflection of Jesus, where grace needs to abound. God, you've called us not to, uh, to find your grace and hide it, not to get into a, a little circle where we just protect and defend each other and, and become just numb in the grace that you poured out for us. God, help us not to cheapen the sacrifice of the cross into something that just protects us. God, the sacrifice of the cross... And the shedding of your blood was for the remission of sin for many. And you said for many because we have to make the choice to accept it. God, help us to lovingly live our life so that people make a choice to accept it. And God, I'm inviting the Holy Spirit that when we feel the pride of our rituals or the pride of how good we think we are, I'm inviting the Holy Spirit in to humble us. Give us the courage to humble ourselves before you have to. Give us the self-awareness to recognize when we need to be humbled. Father, help us to be honest with you. Help us to be honest with ourselves. God, help us to not be skeptical religionists of doing things how we think they should be done. 
God, keep us from being self-righteous to where we think we're so good that we've got it together. God, help us to realize that we are repentant sinners. And that when we sin, we turn away from you. And the Holy Spirit convicts us and we repent and turn back to you. Father, there are things that that I need to repent of in my life. There are things that, and attitudes and behaviors that turn my back to you and I'm sorry. Thank you that the ground at the foot of the cross is level. That your grace isn't given by degrees, but it's given freely. That all we have to do is ask. And so, God, we bow before you at the cross and we we say, have mercy on me, sinner. Let your grace pour over me. Father, we love you. We ask that you move through us to change the world. You called one man to get up from a tax collection booth that became part of a movement that turned the world upside down. God, we get up from whatever mediocrity we sit in today so that we can be a part of your kingdom to change the world. We love you. We thank you. We ask your blessing on this week. God, we invite you into our workplace. We invite you into our parties. We invite you into our marriage. We invite you into our families. We invite you into every detail of life. God, we ask that you are in our everyday, ordinary, eating, drinking, sleeping, walking around life, and that you transform us. Let us begin a new tradition of love. We thank you so much, in Jesus' name.